Welcome to the Complicated by Choices podcast. The perfect complement to my weekly Substack newsletter that delves into a diverse range of social and personal topics through my original art, photography, and writing. Join me, David Coogland, as I seek to gain a deeper understanding of humanity through the choices we make. In each episode, I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life to explore the unique ways in which each of us approaches decision-making, both practically and emotionally. We'll uncover the why behind their choices, and all going well, I hope we can all learn something new and gain a fresh perspective on our own decision-making process. Head over to www.davidcoupland.com for more information on the podcast and the newsletter. Welcome to the first episode of the Complicated by Choices podcast. Today, I have the ever-fascinating Will Lin. He always brings his passion and wisdom to any conversation, and I'm certain he's going to deliver today too. He has a captivating story and a wide range of interests and talents, and I'm excited to hear more about his journey and learn how he got to where he is today. So, without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Will. Could you please give us a sense of your backgrounds, your areas of expertise, and anything else you think might be relevant to this conversation? Thanks, David, and thanks for having me. I'm a real honor to be part of this. Um, well, I thought maybe the easiest way to introduce myself would be a short version of my story. I'm born in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, Steel City under Vulcan's torch, and um, oldest of five sons. And I was just going to live the the life that my family had set up for me. Of all the people were business leaders, and that was the thing. Uh, until I started having seizures when I was 17. By then, I was living in Ohio. Uh, going to boarding school in Michigan, and that changed my whole course of experience. And I ended up becoming a philosophy major, and eventually that led me to studying mythology my senior year in college, and that opened a whole number of doors for me. I did my PhD in myth. Then I started working for the Joseph Campbell Foundation, did that for eight years, and held a number of different leadership and uh, uh, representative-oriented roles. And then I became a department chair of this film and performing arts college called Hushin College in L.A. and L.A. Center Studios, where we are now. And along the way, I started uh, being asked to participate in some documentaries and some TV shows, which uh, I co-host in Europe, a show called Myths, the Greatest Mysteries of Humanity. We've just finished our third season. We get into all kinds of cool topics from zombies to El Dorado. Um, And also... By now, I'm really enjoying some great uh, creative collaborations, like with our good friend, Chris Holmes. Um, So I guess that's a little bit of an introduction to me, at least the surface, at least the persona journey. Um, Looking forward to getting into the rest. Yeah, love it. Thank you. And um, before we do jump in, I just want to ask about your biography, which is is fascinating to me. And and, I mean, you've clearly lived a life of uh, uh, expectation, I guess, when you were younger, and then to kind of pivot over. So just to get a sense of um, one of the biggest choices you made, which was moving away from the traditional family business of business and moving into philosophy and then into mythology, like what, what was the, was, was there a a lot of resistance in your family? Like with you making that choice and was it a gradual thing? Was it an overnight choice or what was the, what was the dynamic there? It's, that was the, you know, one of the biggest journeys of my life was getting towards that choice. A multi-generational of, you know, doing the business leadership thing. And um, my dad, Harvard Business School, his brother, Harvard Business School, and he always told me, you should go to Harvard Business School. And eventually I even did a, a, an intensive program there. Um, but my dad always said, 
do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. And it was always apparent like that, you know, do whatever you want. But by the way, you'd be great at business. You should really think about business, you know. Uh, but that was the vibe. And that was really supportive um, from my from my parents. At the same time, um, doing the mythology thing was pretty rad. Not many people saw how that was going to fit together, including my extended family. And I think um, that everybody's always supportive. But I do remember when I finally turned it into a, a full-time job that supported my existence, uh, some family members might have said to me some things like, we never saw how that was going to work out. We never really, uh, you know, that's just amazing that you turned that into uh, what you did. So uh, support for sure. Um, but definitely, it definitely had to do things my own way. Um, and so I'm really lucky. Um, people that could ask some hard questions, put up some hard challenges, Um but that always, I always felt supported. And um, you're the oldest of five brothers, mm -hmm. and your other four brothers are they in the business world? Yes, uh, my my the second brother is uh, launching a company now called Shipshape. Um, they've raised a whole bunch of money and are really doing amazing things. I helped him name that company. Actually, it was part of what I brought to to help him as a mythologist, mm -hmm. um, and that's part of like a family thing that we've been focused on for generations, actually, smart homes, energy efficiency. So what he's done, while the company's only a few years old, it is the development of decades of this conversation happening at dinner tables. My dad had a company in green energy before that, where I helped him write that business plan called Green Sleeves. Um, so definitely, and then two of my brothers work for him in this company. So the fantasy of the family company uh, is there, and we've all done some things, and we've all supported it. And um they're doing that. But I, I will say, uh, one of the brothers is a physicist, uh, finishing the PhD in physics now. And um, we're all different sides of my dad's personality. It's such a trip. You know, so one of them did the full business thing. That's Alex. Uh, my dad had this other personality that's definitely the type of stuff that I've done. Um, and the same is true with all of them. And, and just what's coming to my mind there, you, you said that you're a different side of your father's personality. Mm -hmm. And do you think that's big? because of the innate elements in each of you or do you think it's because as each of you were born your father was in a different place in his life and understood himself in a different way and was was taking his steps in a different way and therefore influenced mm. each of you in a different way i'm sure that the reasons why we represent different parts of him is because he was engaging his configuration in different ways that he was configuring the what part of himself was in the lead at different times and with me it was always is a kid he was always i'm talking like three years old he's trying to find out from me what are the secrets of the universe and that was precious you know trying to hear from your three-year-old your five-year-old the big answers uh that was probably a, a real gift for me interesting because before we started recording we, you were just mentioned we were talking about uh conflict actually in, in the form of television and movies and and one of the things you'd mentioned is that there's there's often this perception of children having a wider imagination mm -hmm. and you know, there's you. You have a sense that maybe actually it's not as wide as we think, and it's more uh, we deal in reality, right? When when someone says something to you, your imagination doesn't go wild. You take the reality in. So if your dad is kind of coming at you with questions like that, do you think that stoked your imagination more um, and kind of fueled it and then expanded it more so than you know you traditionally would be? Big time, yeah. And I think that my dad didn't just try to teach at me. My dad was asking me questions and that is, I'm a teacher. We're here in a place where I, where I teach and um, I can say that that's one of the biggest things that I've, I've learned over time, how to flip the energy, not just with 
uh, my students, with but with people in my lives to try and flip things around to draw things towards you. And I'm really lucky. I can't say my dad's always that way, but um, but he asked a lot of questions and and drew out my thoughts. And and I think that yeah, that's that's the getting it f- to flow from inside out of a person. Um, yeah, I'm lucky that it went that way. Yeah, and and for me, what why pick out one of the biggest advantages there is he was teaching you to think. And, and I say that thinking about the traditional education system, which is you need to learn these things to pass this exam, right? It's mm-hmm. not it's not teaching you to think outside the box necessarily. So that's where the influence of parents can be extremely significant and help a lot of people when it sounds to me like, to me, that would be how I would want to speak to my child to try and invoke that in them and invoke that curiosity and wonder about the world and about people. And let them do the thinking. You know, get let them do the work. And, yeah. you know, one of the things I, I was taught by a great teacher here that, that did a, uh, a lesson on teaching is he goes, whoever does the most work in the class will do the most learning. And it's typically the teacher. You know, you want to find ways to do get the students to be doing the work, get them to be doing the thinking and questioning so that they grow. Uh, it's kind of like you can rain on a flower all day, but it ain't going to do any growing until the rain stops. Right, right, right. I like that. I love that a lot. Um, and so then just before we quickly move into some questions, um, I just want to touch on the business element. It's a business family. That's what you were influenced to do. And, and as you say, you were given the freedom, which is lovely. Do you, Is there any part of you now that regrets that, that kind of that, that wishes that, oh, I wish I had gotten those skills and maybe what I'm doing now would be bolstered by that. And, and if I'd gone around it in a different way, is there any part of you that thinks Actually, that? Actually, it's a really, it's interesting question. Uh, the truth is it was just so deeply in my DNA so deeply in my like literally every dinner conversation we're talking about why this company succeeded you know and it was so by the time I was finishing my PhD I was deeply in the field of mythology and I'm looking around and I'm seeing that one of the things that it needed the most was business leadership and organization and Hmm. those skills that are just kind of like I kind of live and breathe. They're they're kind of like natural and innate for me. And then I, you know, did some intensive training and have had some opportunities. Now, for the last eight years, I've been managing no less than eight people at a time in my department while also starting other things and doing other things, running community for mythology and mythologists and story people, um, uh, creating um, another business that's kind of coming to fruition now around teaching new ways, education technology uh, business. So I'm actually, the funny thing is, is that why, one of the reasons I didn't want to do business when I was a kid, when I was 17, was that it seemed like, well, what's the purpose? What is the purpose of money? You know, if money is the end of itself, then then it's empty. Right. And I was too simple as a kid. I was simple. So I was like wrestling with the fact that all the men in my family, frankly, their professions have been directed around making money. That's how I saw it at the time. I didn't understand business as a vehicle for whatever was beneath it. For my grandfather, there were a lot of values that he was living out by making the business. You know, so I think that uh, eventually when I had something to live for, to work for, to have meaning around, around myth and storytelling and uh, our collective development of our consciousness with these things, then all of a sudden I wanted to do those things. I wanted to lead business. I wanted to lead teams. And I have, and it's been great. And it's something I expect to do more of. Uh, so I'm going to ask one more question actually, yeah. from that, which is, so in which case then, how does how can myth- mythology benefit business owners? Mm. 
But yeah. how can that the idea of it? How can how can getting finding some interest in it? Um, and, and if you can cite any specific examples, oh yeah, uh, you know how that can benefit people who are trying to make money or grow a business for purpose. Whatever well, it might be. there are two sides of it. One is just how valuable story is, but the other is is myth itself. So. Recently, the CEO of Microsoft wrote a book, Refinding, Rediscovering the Soul of Microsoft. And in it, he references Joseph Campbell quite a lot. And I think that part of it is, you know, there was a guy who was from Disney talking about what it was like to build Disneyland areas, theme theme park areas. And he's like, you just can't manage down to every doorknob. So you need to have themes and you trust your people with themes. Myths are organizing principles. So if a company really understands its myth and everybody in the company really understands its myth, they don't need nearly as much direction and leadership because they're on the wavelength. They're with the vibe. They know what's happening. And I think that that is a huge way that myth can help businesses when everybody and, – and what do I mean by organizing principles? Myths actually, uh, they show us direction. So there's a narrative quality. Where are we trying to come from and to? Every business is trying to take us somewhere. Where are you trying to take us? Every business is representing a, a way of being, a, a person, a, a kind of character modality. Um, being clear on what you're asking for from your customers, from your company, what is the character structure, uh, what is the um, organization structure. That's another huge thing that a lot of people have done uh, where they try to look at archetypal character mm. and archetypal cast of movies, but also archetypal cast of business leadership. If you have a whole bunch of Zeus's, you're going to have a company that looks like this. If you have some balance, if you make sure that you have some Hestia and you have some Hera in the in the business, then you might have more balance. And so myth has helped with that. But then the other thing that you just can't avoid is how valuable story is, frankly, to just marketing, telling the story of a, of a business. And um, uh, there you see that, for example, Brian Chesky over at Airbnb sees all the Airbnb, trip, Airbnb trips as, quote, hero's journeys modeled after a Hollywood movie, right? So... Whether whatever the story is, it's a customer journey, you know. So I've helped companies with that to design what is their customer journey, and I and I design it around narrative structures. What is a training installation journey, so that now the team can be trained into what are they going to do when they go do the job of the company? So all kinds of different training around story structure has been critical, and also really just understanding what is the journey of uh, your customer. And by the way quick little um uh trick if you're trying to sell something you're not trying to take somebody on a whole journey you're trying to take them on the first act of the journey you're calling them to adventure the purchase is the crossing of the threshold then once they bought something now they're on the journey with your product. now they're you know in on your company and whatever your service is mm -hmm. but marketing is uh just the first act just the call to adventure come do this thing and you see that in the like you know different Brand journey, for example, it's a book on using the hero's journey to do your branding, and it's brilliant. What it's done is it's moved the whole journey, it's restructured the whole journey into Act One. So, for example, when they're calling you to adventure, part of the things that they're doing is telling you what the rest of the journey will be, because they dang well know that you can't take somebody on the whole journey in the marketing, but by presenting the whole journey in the call, right, to buy. Anyway, things like that, uh, marketing team organization, uh, organizing principles for the whole company, uh, myth has a lot of value for, for businesses. I love that explanation. And uh, it resonates resonates quite a lot with me. Um, and I mean, the the most basic uh, 
version of, I guess, would be the brand, right? And the mission statement, right? As as that kind of representation of your story um, mm-hmm. and, and which will run through internally and externally is the ambition. So, all right, well, that's great. Um, so, well, thank you for sharing all that. Um, so let's get into the some, some questions a little bit. Um, we're going to talk about choices as we talked about. Um, I'm going to start off simple. We'll kind of ease in. Um, and the first one would be, you know, finish this sentence for me. When I hear the word choice, I immediately think of existentialism. <laughs> okay, existentialism. Anything else? Oh, um, purpose. Purpose. Okay. It's so, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna call you out because this is interesting, and this is the reason I do this. So before I uh, before we came here today, I sent Will a little questionnaire and asked him several questions, and mm-hmm. the the three answers you gave me then. Mm-hmm. Which I'm guessing we do have more thoughts over mm-hmm. were uh, courage, philosophy, and cycles. Mm, yeah, yeah. So why do you think they're different now? Well, it's kind of like a different way of saying the same thing, you know. So courage, uh, if you've heard the you know, Tillich's courage to be, courage to be is a response to the existential problems of having to make a choice. Right. So ultimately, the existential problem of not knowing what to do, how do I orient myself to a choice, uh, ultimately requires courage. And courage, as Socrates says, is primarily of the philosophical disposition. So if you want to find that courage to actually be and to make choices, which is what you have to do to be, then you have to examine your life and live philosophically to find the courage to be. Um, And then when it comes to cycles, the reason I said that is because we also, a lot of times, aren't making as many choices as we think we are. We're stuck in these conditioned loops and patterns. And so our choices, we have opportunities to make choices. And the biggest choices we make have to do with breaking whole cycles. Mm-hmm. And typically, in a long cycle, there are only a few moments, if maybe only one, in that whole cycle, in that whole journey of, of a repeated pattern, where you actually have the consciousness required to make a choice. Right. So so essentially, you're making a choice one time for X amount of time oh, yeah. leading into it. Like, every choice it. repeats itself in every other example of that choice. Right. You're never making one choice at a time. You're always making every choice like that choice every time you're making a choice. Okay. And and uh, that compounds and, and becomes more resilient and mm-hmm. it just makes it easier to make those choices as time mm-hmm. goes on. So so with that with that line question, I'm just thinking back to you know le- making choices when you're younger and and often those choices are made without awareness of what the world what the reality is um and also you're in kind of a position where you're you're almost pushed into choices at times you're 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 very limited in your options mm-hmm. and so if that which i like this idea of cycles like that kind of compounds through adulthood and you end up kind of going into cycles uh, of choices which you made when you were 5 years old 10 years old that would actually be better to be reflected on right now and think actually you know, is that a learned behavior that I, I should unlearn? And typically, it takes going through a repetition of that choice and pattern, and then we get to this place where it crashes, and then we have these moments of, of honestly, ego death. But what the ego really is is a whole bunch of complex of complexes. It's just a bundle of complexes around ourself and our, our individuality. And so when one of those complexes, when one of those patterns finally reveals itself by crashing then we can let it go and we have this inrush of consciousness and we have a, a prayer's chance of of trying to not do the same thing again all right i like that I like that a lot okay um so when it comes to making choices and decision making do you have any 
tried and true methods. And I guess the the first part of that is, you know, do you think about your choices? And I know I know you enough to know that you do. Um, so do you have any tried and true methods? And and this is more of a general rather than small to big. Mm-hmm. Well, I tend to be a big time processor, like a lot of processing. And for me, what's critical is I've eventually realized that there is no one side of me that's clear. And clarity comes from letting myself engage a problem from many different ways. And the truth is, I, I try to pretend like I'm sure of things all the time to make choices. But ultimately, I can't make them until and really feel that I've made them until I've gone through the process where my shadow has a chance to tell me all the problems with that, you know, but where in where I have a chance to intellectualize, I have a chance to, and, and it's, it sometimes like looks painful to go through all these different ways of wrestling with big choices, but I just kind of have to go through all of it. And eventually at the end, after I've done a lot of the processing over intellectualizing and all that kind of stuff to all done through all the anxieties that might be involved, um, I will say that for me, eventually, um, I try to get into an intuitive space. I try to get real still. I try to get with my energy and with my feelings. And I try to eventually find in my feelings what is real and what the right things are. And I wish I could start there, but it's not easy. I can't exactly start there. Um, But yeah, in the end, I try to just go to intuition and my feeling. And it always what happens is once you find it and feel it, then the rest of the intellectual answer of why that's the thing comes through. Absolutely. Ms. Realizes. Um, so the, let me ask you then, um, uh, you go through this process of decision making. Mm-hmm. There's always an instinct when something happens and you're posed with a, a choice to make. Do you find that most times your intuition, your in, in instinct initially is the same result as after you've processed it? Like is it more times your, your instinct is on the money? And, and obviously it's understandable why you're going to keep processing. It's a great thing to be doing, but you know, do do you find that your instinct is mostly on part, like it's it's working for you? Yes, but my blind spots are my complexes. Gotcha. And it's hard to distinguish an instinct from a triggered complex. Right. Right. Um, or parts as yeah. Well. Without goes to processing right. parts. Yes. 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 Yeah. Okay. Great. Okay. Um. So. Um, Thinking about small to big decisions, right? Choosing what to have for dinner mm-hmm. and choosing to take a new job or move mm-hmm. to a new place. And I know you've done a lot of those in, in your time. What? How does the process differ between the two? Because mm-hmm. what we just talked about feels a lot more robust, right? It feels like it's more about those life decisions. Mm-hmm. But is there a process when deciding to get have dinner or, or whether it's time to walk to work or whenever it might be? Well, I mentioned that I had uh, seizures and there was this whole transit, you know, I remember one of the things that actually led to this, uh, led to the seizures, was because I was studying Camus and Descartes and uh, philosophy in high school, and my philosophy teacher was fired for smoking weed because that used to be a thing that happened back mm-hmm. in the old world. Yep. And um, and I was kind of left alone with Descartes and Camus. And Camus convinced, at first Descartes convinced me I didn't know anything and that I basically couldn't know anything. Cause I, well, he, he believed that you could know stuff, but his argument for why I couldn't know was actually convincing, and his argument for what you couldn't know it wasn't really working. Then I get to Camus, and Camus convinces me that if I don't know what purpose is, I can't make any decisions. I, like, what what am I doing if it, everything isn't anchored back to some thesis of a purpose? An independent purpose, you mean, or like a general humanity purpose? I thought, and, and so Camus' vision is Sisyphus pushing this boulder up a mountain, right? Mm-hmm. So his fantasy is that there's going to be one boulder on top of the mountain that's going to be the one truth 
that's going to be the one purpose that is going to explain all the rest of the mountain. But his belief is that there isn't a purpose. There is no one thing you can get to stand up there. It's a delusion and that the stone's going to roll back down whenever thing you try to roll up there where you say it's romantic love, human love, whatever. It's it, counterfeit. It's right. And so he doesn't believe you're... So I was stuck. I was I was Sisyphus and I couldn't find a, a truth or a purpose right. to put on top of the mountain. Yet at the same time, I was convinced that I needed a purpose to anchor all my decisions. And it literally got to a place where I would take small decisions. I would go to pick a sweater or pick a shirt in the morning and I would literally be like, there's no reason to pick one over the other. I'm not going to shave today either. You know, that's where I was at. And in, so even the small decisions, I, I saw real with a lot of clarity that even the tiny decisions have to be, have some purpose behind them, have some orienting principle behind them. And I realized I hadn't had any, I had none. Um, now, where am I so much later? Um, I don't know. I think, I think I used to be too intense. And so I think I, I could, uh, I remember having a real clear thought about you know, in my creative work, needing to make the tiniest decisions with all the effort I put into the big ones. And that's part of how I do things. But at the same time, I also just try to try to just reduce some care and let some small decisions be and make them and try not to overthink and try not to make it as intense as I have in the past and uh, could have. Um, but sometimes just, you know, I've also come and this might be something that's just being over 35 and starting to get, I start to just trust myself a little more and just be who I'm going to be a lot more. I put a ton of thought in designing who I am. And now what I'm enjoying is unleashing myself to just be what I put together a lot more. Right. And so to kind of being a bit more experimental with it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. More caution to the wind. Yeah. And less afraid. Right. There's like whatever, you know? Right. And yeah, I mean, life is all about experience as we yeah. know. And the more things that you try, the more things you know won't harm you and or cause pain mm -hmm. and and as you do more and more of that as you get older you kind of get more comfortable with making choices and find more courage which is you talked about at the start being one of the most important parts of decision making because a lot of decisions in life we can we can never be certain it's the right one and mm -hmm. and we might not even know for decades if we ever do um so it absolutely does take courage so so mm -hmm. I, I certainly agree with that um okay so when when you're faced with a decision that potentially impact other people, mm. right? And uh, how do you navigate that minefield? Um, and, and again, there's obviously a spectrum here, but just as a general kind of sense of contemplating other people's experiences and all oh, your actions. That's where, that's the biggest source of my suffering is, is like, honestly, I went from, when I took on this job, for example, I was thinking about it the other day, I went from um, being just kind of being able to be friends with everybody to being some, and somebody who was. And supportive of the whole thing in the big picture to somebody who had jobs people wanted and had limited jobs to give my people and then all of a sudden i'm now not just like everybody's friend now i actually have to make decisions that affect people i care about and not just people that i've hired off the street but people that i have from my alumni organization stuff like that and that um that's very heavy and hard for me for sure um decisions that affect other people um I think honestly, I don't know how I deal with it. I just know that that I am the kind of person that will carry the possibility of hurting somebody for days, weeks, months, years, depending on it. You know, right? So I don't know if I'm a good answer on that one. And they're the eight. There's, they're all good answers. 
because that's the point of this, right? Is for us to think about these things, or at least for me anyway, to think about these things and, and different ways we might think about them. Um, so that's interesting. So um, so then what about if, you know, there are times when you have to make one of these decisions, yeah. which will negatively affect yeah. people. Um, like, how do you manage that? Like, how do you, how do you manage the aftermath of that? You know, the thing is, the way I live is I try to do the right thing the best I can so that I can deal with whatever the consequences are. Everything you do has consequences. So it's about living with the decision you made and the consequences are going to happen. So I try to really get clear on doing the best thing so that that's my only protection from myself <laughs> when to sleep at night. Right. And one of the things, for example, is there's always other organizing principles. Here I'm working at a school and who do I really work for are the students. So at the end of the day, I it helps me to retreat to, you know, I have to do the right thing for the students. Right. And uh, I'm always looking for, for that kind of thing, some place to make sure I'm doing the best and rightest thing um, and always, always get it right. I also believe that you just got to put your best intention into things, too, and also realize intention isn't enough. You're totally going to mess things up. And even if you have best intentions and that's to those damages still matter. Um, but uh, and I actually one more thing on that that I've learned over time is that if you, you have to have curiosity. It's not enough to have good intentions. Mm -hmm. You have to actually care to ask and understand as much as possible. It's something I've had to learn in the last several years to have more curiosity um, is part of care, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, yeah, those those decisions that affect other people, really tough for me. And I think I try to hide as best as I can um, in doing what I think are the right things. Right. Um, and on the note of curiosity, another way to say that is maybe understanding, right? Seeking understanding of, of what the repercussions are going to be, what the results are going to be. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Well, that's, that's uh, um, it's hard. It's hard making decisions that affect other people. Um, I mean, you have to. That's the thing. Is that yeah. That's the other thing that I know is like sitting there hurting and making no decisions is hurting everybody. Mm -hmm. And so, so I mean, what, what I'm getting a sense of, it's kind of you attacking from more of a consequentialist perspective right it's, it's the greater good right it's, it's what what is my decision going to do and, and whether and you're kind of separating yourself or at least you're kind of merging yourself in with the result of, of other people that you might do rather than just thinking what's good for me what's good for them it's one big bucket of and i think about how people are going to feel right now i feel it yeah right small decisions then um just let's use a dinner example again so you're lacing someone mm -hmm. and what are we gonna have for dinner tonight? We're going out for dinner. That's a, a couple. Some couple. Every couple in the world struggles with, or at least at some point, until they learn how to communicate that. And it's funny because it's to me those things are funny because they're the most basic survival needs of every every being on the planet, by the way, let alone humanity. Um, but yet we we still struggle with these very simple ideas. And I mean, to me, uh, I actually think that's because we have too much choice these days it's like it's too easy right because mm -hmm. look at now compared to ten thousand years ago it's it's a different story so um if you're in that kind of situation uh and i know it will be different with everyone but what kind of emotions come up like when you're saying oh what do you want to have for dinner like are you someone who says this is what i want this is where we should go or are you someone who says what do you you know put it on the other person for their comfort that people pleasing side or maybe it's just because like i would say for me I'm not fussy in that. I'll always find something to eat anywhere. And it's just, mm -hmm. for me, it's always important to spend time with someone and, yeah. and do that sort of things. But, you know, it's a it's a really complex thing that's spawned from something so simple in our well, lives. It is complex. So just using that example, just how do you, you know, how do you attack those kind of situations? You know, it's it's like, 
it has so much to do with the, with the other person's emotion and the dynamic and all those things. And I think like, cause you're, it's, everything is always compensatory, you know? Um, I was even saying to students not long ago, uh, teaching a philosophy class, every philosophical movement is actually not trying to say that theirs is the main truth. It's like they're responding to an imbalance before them. Right. And so typically trying to make sense of where am I going to go to dinner? It's probably the answer is probably going to be based on whatever the imbalance is. Oh, is this dynamic? Are we not going out hard enough? Are we, you know, not staying in enough? Are we, uh, it's, it's trying to remember all the things, the wants and needs and trying to meet what those are, um, in a very unique situation. Um, but I will say left to my own, that that the way I nudge things is towards memories. I want memories. I don't want to do forgettable things. I actually have a lot of anxiety about tread treadmills, you know, of time. Sure. You know, so my kind of thing is like, if it's going to be a Friday night and we're going to do something, I would rather eat like, you know, well, I don't know. I, 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 I want it to be an experience. Mm-hmm. Let's go have the best food or let's go to a weird place where there's an environment or something like that. And it's, it's maybe more important to me than even the people I'm around sometimes, right. because for me in this part of being a mythologist, mythologist, we studied memory. How does memory form? So I'm actually often trying to write memories into existence because they're the most precious treasures that we have. So one of the ways that I'm making the little decisions is, okay, what, what, uh, I love when I have the time, um, to organize memories and design memories so that the little tiny pieces, uh, which symbol, I love symbols. So little gifts are always symbols for me. Every gift I give is a symbol. Um, if I can make themes, stories around my experiences, um, I do. I do as much as I can. Um, yeah, so I think there, there's this great um, Vanessa Taylor. I had a conversation with Vanessa Taylor who wrote the screenplay for Shape of Water. And she talked about how important it was for her to figure out theme. Because once she understood theme, she knew what to put in the background on the TV, what to have in the conversation in the in the room when they come in. All of a sudden, all the details are easy to fill out around the theme. Um, so I think that's probably it. Compensatory themes. And right. stories, right? Okay. Well, I mean, what this this highlights for me that on a very basic level is even the most simplest decisions come with so much complexity. Oh yeah, and and uh, it's kind of you went down the rabbit hole. I was hoping you'd go with it to to an extent in just to kind of prove the theory that this is a small decision, and people as humans we beat ourselves up for uh, having to make decisions as we talked about before for example yours that will affect lives of people that work for you and so forth and that's the 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 repercussions or ramifications of those decisions is so vast yet if we scale it down to making this dinner decisions that's even just as more complicated but it's just it's mind-blowing how uh how complex choices are at whatever level of the scale you're at um, i remember sart uh, Sartre, whatever. Uh, Sartre made this comedy, and it was a joke. We said that the French were the most free under Nazi occupation, free from making any decisions, which are the biggest burdens. Right, right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, I would say for me, the way I think about choices is it's the second greatest advantage in life over luck. Hmm. That's that's interesting. for me. That's where you know to have a choice. It's it's like. The second greatest advantage of luck is like, you know, where you're born, who you're born to. You want all these different elements that we know play into the lives of everyone on this planet. And then to have a choice once you're there and in that situation, and maybe that's to do with your parents, to do with whatever it is, that's the second part of it. Mm. Um, 
So uh, I think they they play a huge, uh, significant part of lives. Um, okay, so when it comes to making life changing decisions, moving somewhere, changing jobs, or changing careers, or changing from a business mentality to a philosophy one, like, are there emotions similar to to that? You just explained to me about you getting dinner, or I my big life changes have been bigger than my decisions, and I have to say that what has happened is it has always been some uncontrolled death of who I was. And and then when I look back and I'm dealing with that death coming on and happening and getting past it, I always look back and see my new life's threads having already been there. So, you know, when I, when I thought I was going to be a business person uh, and then I became a philosopher focused on telling stories and mythology and all that stuff, I can easily look back and see that that was all being born. It was coming into my being. I loved writing stories. I loved Tolkien. I, I see what I grabbed onto before that. Mm-hmm. Same thing when I went through a lot of loss uh, building the Joseph Campbell Writers Room here. There's a whole story about why it's, it's not still around, and that was pretty hard on me. And um, what I saw uh, was that as it was coming apart, um, which, by the way, didn't have anything to do with me. I couldn't control it. Mm-hmm. You know, again, the deaths that you can't even control, um, like it's a, you're being forced and down a new road. And I look back and I had started doing these collaborations with musicians. I had started to be interviewed for some documentaries. And that has those things have been a big part of the life that's grown out of that death. Right. And they were already starting. The seeds were being planted as my last life was dying. And I, I think that in some ways... The decisions I feel the best about are decisions that I observe having like that I'm making beyond my conscious ego self, like something deep. My whole pattern is right. Walking this direction. Right. It's it's uh, it's the self coming through. Yeah. It's just kind of knowing which direction it needs to be heading. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'll echo that in the sense that um, much more recently for me, even this podcast, my newsletter, my painting, all that stuff has just been the threads have been building throughout my life and some of them have been there since I was a kid mm-hmm. and they're only being realized now. They're only being capitalized on now and kind of uh, and making that shift into into accepting them and, and embracing them. And, and by the way, they're easy ones to embrace because they're so enjoyable, but it's, uh, yeah, like the the foundations were there. Um, and, and so those things, are, I would actually argue that sometimes they're not even a choice, right? Yeah. That's like, it's, that, which I think is yeah. getting at is there's that core self, which is like, this is for you. This is, the duration, but sometimes you just need uh, different experiences to understand that and to know that and learn that. Typically, the choice maker is kicking and screaming as this happens. <laughs> you know, like, right. no way. One of the examples that I turn to is uh, that actually, as I've gone through some of this, some things that, you know, like you pick up a book when you're in a place like this and it gives you exactly the thing you're looking for. Well, one of those things that came to me in like five books at a dime during going through this was um, 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 Herman Hesse. And his journey to the East, he talks about basically this guy whose former self, he's, it's dying and it's failing and he's and it's, and it's disfiguring. And yet he sees this statue of this, of himself and his disfiguring, dying, it, sewn to this other half of himself that was this golden lumen, like the energy was going from one dying self into another. But the other, what we've been set up to understand is that this is like, it's it's actually very meta because the name he uses is the author's name. Right. So the author has now written this character throughout the story. So this character is his ideal self 
And now the person that represents his ego self is now dying into and realizing that it's been bleeding into and setting up this other identity that he's authored. And you see the same thing in Jung's Red Book, where he talks about the death of this kind of dying, ending ego, but then the way that gives birth to the God of the self, this this new self that is luminescent, and it's what you've been authoring all along. And you see, I saw the same thing in Steiner talking about uh, esoteric initiations. So it's like all of them are pointing to this way that we are authoring our next selves and don't even realize it. And basically there's this moment where we have to realize, wait a minute, I'm not identifying with the person I've designed. I'm identifying with the person who's not able to be it. And I remember the right before 2020, I remember thinking to myself, uh, oh, I know what adult will is and I'm not even identifying with him yet. It's like I've been seeing him in the future, what adult will is supposed to be in the future. And finally, when I realized that, I, I started like, you know, no, oh, I'm going to move my identity over into this person I've been authoring all along. Mm-hmm. And I've done that multiple times in multiple ways. And and I think there's something. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate the way that luck has pulled those uh, descriptions to me and different different works. Yeah, I mean, I love that. And, and uh, again, I'll, I'll echo that. Like, I agree with that. There's just been many moments of that cycle. Again, it's one of those cycles mm-hmm. and just kind of embracing and. and taking the leap and having the courage to do so in those moments. Um, but you said in there, um, identify the person I've designed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's interesting to me because, you know, to some extent, of course, you've designed it. Um, but really, we're, mo- we're mostly shaped by the experiences we have, by our parents, by whatever it is. So when you say identify the person I've designed, what do you, what do you mean by that in relation to the exterior influences of you? How do you separate that? It's almost like these. this is the person I've chosen. Right. It's like there's the person that I've just become yep. through all the conditioning and through all the things. And this is just this like the body that the earth made of me, the ego that the earth made of me, the person that I was created into. But I've actually been able to. It's kind of like you have your real parents and you have an ideal parent. And it's important to actually have both. You know, the the ideal parent, your parent is never going to be a perfect ideal parent, but you having clarity on what ideal is, is still living in you. That ideal lives in you and is healthy and good for you. So like there's the person that you actually are. And then there's these ideals that you've been creating in yourself of who you want to be and what they are and, and what a person. Be. And I think a lot of us are actually horrified of trying to be what we think we should be and what we think we really are. Right. That's one of the big 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 challenges and it takes existential experiences often uh to make the jumps i i agree and um last thing is why psychedelics can be very helpful to people is to kind of uh especially when we're so ingrained with a uh a pattern a cycle or uh, you know a, a structure of our lives like to to break out of it and and to kind of a common phrase to break out of the matrix i guess yeah. it's like it's you need it takes an existential moment to do that and and sometimes um, we're lucky enough to have those, and there can be bad experiences more often. I would say I see it as well as good experiences, um, but it's where I, I see the advantage of things like psychedelics uh, in people that are really just stuck in those patterns and stuck in this this uh, I would say identity that's been designed by other people as opposed to identity designed by yourself. Yeah, we usually talked about. So uh, that's all very interesting to me. Um, okay, let's. Um, I'm going to rewind a bit, which is going to take a trip down memory lane. 
what, what's the first choice you remember making? Oh. The, and they, this is going to be a hard one, I know. Yeah. Because I, honestly, you asked me that right now, I couldn't remember. But it, uh, as a choice. Mm-hmm. Huh. Or even the first one that comes to mind, right? Because obviously, you know, you make choices from when you're two, three years old, I'm sure, to some extent. Um, definitely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But something that's... I'm trying something that wasn't just kind of like just me growing out of the earth and how I was. Like, when did I... What was a real, real choice? I think that probably when I started to... It, and I don't remember any specific choices in this context, but I remember knowing when I was going... My family moved going into fifth grade for me one in fifth grade and I remember knowing that I got to kind of reinvent myself and I think that it was one of the greatest blessings and curses I've ever had to move around I you know I, I played uh, I went from moving to Ohio then I went to boarding school in Michigan and then college in Tennessee then my family moved to Florida I'm out here in LA and along the way I played for 10 different soccer teams it was all you know all kinds of stuff so first impression city I, I was making that, that of my life was a lot of these chances to reinvent myself what a blessing, you know, to not be forced to be who I was when I was seven by the people who remembered me that whole time. Yet at the same time, what a what a curse it's been to have not, you know, it really affected the way that I build long term connections and relationships for sure. Um, but that aside, I do remember being going into fifth grade and really, you know, I don't think I made a decision about I want to be this or I want to be that. But to that point, when when an old self dies, it's when you have a real opportunity. Mm-hmm. I left home as a kid. I left my childhood. I left my Eden. And that was when all of a sudden I, I had uh, some freedom of individuality. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and then I did the same thing when I went to boarding school. I, I was Mr. Responsible, oldest of five sons. I did, you know, my dad worked a lot. So I did everything. I did so much, so much. And my parents were chore people, you know, so we did a lot. I went to boarding school and all of a sudden... I didn't have to take care of my brothers. I didn't have to do any chores. All of a sudden, all these cycles and things that I was latched, that was part of my huge opportunity to to wake up and liberate a little bit was the busyness was gone. All of a sudden, I had my own, you know, autonomy of being, and I had to fill the space. So uh, almost what we're seeking with meditation. Oh, yeah. Opportunity to, to, to think, to stand still for a moment and, and look around and think, okay, is this for me? And if not, how do I how do I shift this? I'm someone who has very, been very deliberate about seeking life experience and about seeking a diversity of experiences in life with the ambition to understand people and the widest spectrum I can and understand culture and people. And, um, so to me, this that like that kind of upbringing is is enticing to me in the, in the inner child and in yep. that it's just this forcing of opportunity. Like yep. I think about my I have a little brother who is uh, 11 now. Um, and you know, he, he's, uh, traveled to so many different countries compared to me, which I, I think I been to two countries by the time I was 22, right outside of England. And then my twenties were filled with travel and you know, I had the, the capability to do it. But, um, having that at such a young age, I think is a, a, a showcase on options. Like you just like, if we grow up in a, a single environment, uh, that's pretty consistent throughout our childhood. Mm-hmm. I I'm, I believe that we're so limited in that. Like we yeah. just that lack of variation stifles or has the potential to stifle people. Yeah, and um, those especially curious minds will break out of that with reading and learning and experiencing different things within that environment. But for those that aren't prone to that, that don't have that gene in them, 
you kind of it limits you, I think. So I think your upbringing and moving around is is great, and especially the example you gave in that you know you've had this responsibility at home. Uh, what that rang to me, and you tell me if this is true or not, is when when you hear of stories of people going to boarding school or it's you know shown on a television show, or whatever. It's resistant. It's like I don't want to do that. This just seems like the most worst thing. I don't want to leave home. I don't want to leave the comfort of it. But for you, it seemed like it was a good thing. It was yeah. an advantage. Big time. In my case, um, you know, one of the big things for me as an older brother is I was always very, very conscious from a very young age that big brothers can damage their younger brothers by trying to be super alpha with them. And so I always enjoyed moments when there were clear opportunities that my brothers were were at the helm and taking lead in different ways. You know, made me the proudest. It was stuff I liked, right? Uh, so, you know, my brother still thinks he's better at fixing things than me because I let him be. Just kidding, of course. You know, Mister Fix It is Alex, and he and he has lived that into his personality. And I didn't want to compete with that because I loved that they was just awesome with that and never never needed to. Um, so, um, uh. Oh shoot! Now I've lost your question. <laughs> that's, that's okay. Um, uh, I mean, you kind of got to give me give me so much of it anyway. Um, and one question I asked of what you just said is uh, you kind of said about uh, realizing early that the kind of the alpha male influence would be a negative effect on your brothers. How did you learn that? So what 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 brought that on? I punched my brother when we were four, and I saw that it hurt him and hurt his feelings, and that was the last time any of the five of us ever fought physically. That's amazing. Okay. Mm-hmm. And why did you punch him? Well, I don't know. We were four. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. You know? Okay. Yeah. And wait, you were four or he was? I think, I, I don't know. Maybe I was four or five and he was, okay. you know, three or four or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, I must have been a little older, maybe five and seven or right. six and five. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's uh, a great lesson to learn that young, especially with five brothers, because uh, I've known different families of brothers and they mm-hmm. they can be pretty volatile, you know, mm-hmm. pretty, pretty physical. I'm not saying that we... Uh, didn't fail to learn a lot of feminine things as a family of five brothers and a, and a dad who uh, has some masculine tendencies and, and a culture that is especially masculine um, and uh, and a mom who was raised in a patriarchal kind of family, right? So we have a lot of the we one of the things we've had to grow around is how to grow beyond our very natural masculinity very easy masculinity people like we are guys that are just easy to be on a sports team of a bunch of guys easy to be in a room and that's partially because they're just my my i don't have sisters my brothers are brothers and um and i by the way i think about how tragic it is as a brother um to think of a whole country of a billion and a half people without brothers mm-hmm. anyway that's an aside uh, but yes, another uh, conversation for another time. Yeah. Um, but uh, on the flip side, funny enough, so I I grew up with uh, a single mom, mm-hmm. two sisters, and my grandma. So I had uh, women mm-hmm. predominant in my life. So it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, which definitely makes a difference as well. Of course, um, yeah, very different different journeys there. Um, okay, um, so uh, thinking back to when you were kids mm-hmm. to now, mm-hmm. um, we will go through changes. We will grow, and we've talked about some of that. So. Um, What's what's been the one of the most significant changes in your decision making process, or like, was there a point in your life where you're just like, oh, I'm making bad decisions because of this, right? This this is triggering me to do this. Was there any moment like that, or has it just been a pretty consistent journey? To, uh, no, I, I think actually, um, uh, every time you die, you have those, you know, changes in how you make choices. And one of the things that I eventually went through a, a lot of death around COVID. 
um, personal, emotional, psychological death, you know, the end of a eight year relationship, the fall of the thing that I had built, uh, which was beyond my control is my business. Uh, part of Jonas, 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 and Jonas, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that, uh, and then COVID happening and, uh, <clears throat> sorry, but that was, um, those things led me down a pretty intense path and, um, coming through it and out of it what I've been forced to recognize um, is that I did not understand. Uh, there's a, so much, I understood femininity so much less than I ever thought I did. And that, and, and it was from so many misunderstandings that I did things so wrong. You know, like I, I would get goaded by uh, certain more feminine ways of being. Um, and that I just simply didn't understand. Um, and, didn't have compassion for and didn't have patience for. Um, and I realized since then it, it is, it's, it's actually a lot of nuanced stuff and, and gendered stuff, which is tricky to talk about. But my way of dealing with people is changed a lot. I'm much more aware of their feminine things, their feminine side uh, in the way I deal with people. Instead of dealing with people as a bunch of masculine people where it's all about achievement and expectation and, you know, obviously you're going to be able to do the thing that you're supposed to be doing and you say you're going to do, you know, like boss stuff, uh, boss and like that kind of energy. It's, I've shifted so much more to being very, very aware of people's hearts and the equation and emotions and, um, and how those process. I've learned so much more about the fact that like, you know, the first things people say the first ways that they respond aren't necessarily what they really think and feel. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I did not understand at all. And I'm a philosopher arguer. So somebody would start in with a bad first response and I wouldn't give them a second to process and get to a better one. I was fighting them over that first response. Mm -hmm. That was one of the biggest things that has changed. I don't fight people over their initial reactionary stuff. Mm -hmm. I've, I let it, I, I, I've shifted from having a conversation of intellect to a conversation of energy and emotion with a person, um, which has let me let some of this intellectual stuff not goad me and not get pulled into what just become destructive arguments that aren't even about what they seem to be about. So again, I'm going to, I'm going to distill this down again. So, oh, yeah, that was all over the place. No, 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 no. That was very cohesive. It was great. So, but, but to me, it's like you essentially realized that your EQ was skewered mm -hmm. and it was skewered in a direction that wasn't applicable to everyone. Mm -hmm. It was more dominant in one direction and you kind of you step back from that and be like okay i need to be more responsive to this mm -hmm. and contemplate and 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 uh also i, I know that eq is something that there's an innate part of you that has eq but i think it is something that you can learn like intellect you can grow your intellect you can grow your eq grow your cultural intelligence mm -hmm. um and so that's what it feels like to me is that big observation of that skewardness is was one direction you need to expand your eq yeah definitely definitely and it's yeah. just that standard Jungian thing where it's like there's a bunch of the stuff that you've left out that you're not incorporating into your personality and that's affecting how you're engaging other people. And all of us have journeys to, to integrate stuff that we're leaving out, which is leaving us imbalanced, which is leaving us in imbalanced ways of connecting with people. Right. Right. Um, uh, and you had said, um, some of these big moments of shift, uh, when you died. Yeah. And I'm going to actually bring that back. You didn't mention this word here, but we talked about it earlier again is purpose, mm -hmm. right? And and those ego deaths, mm -hmm. to one of the greatest things that come out of those ego, ego deaths is a, a better awareness or a shift in your purpose, like a, a better understanding of what fulfills you or what you would like to achieve and whatnot. So I'm guessing that's part of 
like how you how you expand the EQ and how you expand that kind of mentality is you think about like this is my driving force right now. I want to make I want to have this impact in the world. I want to make people feel this way. And of course, to me, that adjusts the way you approach situations thereafter. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, may I say I disagree with what you're saying? I, yeah. I, uh, that's, yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the other thing I'd say about EQ is that EQ, there are two types of it. And one is that it's uh, it's more intellectual. Like I understand the system of emotion. And the other is I actually feel the emotion. And um, my, I actually have found that I have a really tremendous capacity. This is the funny thing. Some of the things that we haven't integrated, they're not weak parts of ourselves. Sometimes we find that they're really strong things that we have. Right. And for me, I, I apparently, that's something I very much have. And I just hadn't brought it in. You know, a way to feel the emotion with people. What I was crutching on was a tremendous intellectual capacity to think through and understand emotion. But the problem was there was a lot of system that I just didn't see. A lot of emotional system. And that was not to be overgendered about it, but it just is the case that a lot of the systems I understood were the systems of a hypermasculine culture and a very masculine family and a very masculine body and experience. And so certain things, and this is just natural that we should develop our primary thing at first. We, we don't develop the other half of ourselves until we do some development of the first half of ourselves. And so, by the way, on that note, um, we also have to really give ourselves a lot of forgiveness for young men being very masculine and young women being very, or in everything in between, you know, but because a lot of the times people don't become whole human beings until <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a, yeah. a big believer in that too. I, I'm a, uh, I know for, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life mm -hmm. and would I make the same mistakes now? Of course I would. Like I, I, I wouldn't say the same things. I wouldn't do the same things. But uh, the idea of forgiveness is one that uh, I've learned is very important, mm -hmm. um, and it's forgiving other people as much mm -hmm. as it's yourself. And uh, you know, we just didn't know any better at certain times. I'd say that there's many mistakes I've made because I just didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. But secondarily, there's an element of survival which is has evolved in the modern day. You know, ten thousand years ago, it was like fill your belly be safe, you know, get shelter, keep warm, that kind of thing. Now it's like survival. There's there's a survival instinct at work. There's a survival instinct in your social circle. There's a survival instinct when you go to the grocery store. There's all these different nuances to survival these days. And uh, I think that plays a huge part of it um, and, and how it manifests in you and how you kind of bring these things down. Life. And and one example I'll give is, you know, growing up and you're in different friend circles and they do things a certain way and they speak a certain way and i think a huge part of that is you kind of perpetuating these these uh mannerisms these these kind of phrases whatever it might be to fit in because that's a part of the survival where it's like this is my group right now this is like these people were the ones that protect me they're the ones that i i walk through the world with and right it's tribe exactly that and and it's the same as you could adapt to any political party sports team whatever it might be it's like that's the number one right because you maybe don't know any better. And and I would say for me, uh, you know, up until today, there's things I don't know any better about and I will make mistakes as I go forward. But you've really got to make those mistakes to learn those lessons. Yeah. Absolutely. And But the key is forgiving yourself for your past self. You know, if someone is in a situation where they're like, oh, I made this mistake 10 years ago, and then they think to themselves, I would still do the same thing again today. That's a that's yeah. a problem, right? If yeah. you're if you're looking at it ten years ago and, and saying, Oh, I would never do that today, 
that's one of the times to forgive yourself, I would say, is because you've become aware and you've learned and, and you have a higher EQ or higher tolerance, whatever it is, um, for understanding um, to all that point. Basically. I agree. And I think, by the way, forgiveness is one of the things that we are really struggling to figure out as a bigger, as a culture. Because forgiveness came to us through Christianity and our relationship with Christianity is really eroded. And even our relationship with forgiveness through Christianity was problematic. My brother was kicked out of a Catholic school on one strike. Where's the forgiveness, right? So, you know, the the point is um, we do have a major problem with forgiveness in this culture. And I actually uh, foresee that we're about to have, it's about to be a theme. We just had, we just canceled a lot of people. Yeah. And I'm sure I see things in stories. That's a setup. I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. We're going to see something here. I mean, there has to be some kind of shift, uh, you know, and uh, again, I think I'll go back to that analogy. If, if someone did something 10 years ago and they're not willing to own up to it and, and take responsibility yeah. and, and, you know, uh, take responsibility, whatever it is, versus them saying, now, look, I was a kid. I didn't know any better. I was trying to fit it. I was doing this, whatever. Like, and obviously there's a spectrum of that. Yeah. Like, there's doing terrible things and then there's like saying some terrible things yeah. and whatever it is. It's like a whole spectrum, but... It's that taking responsibility, that genuine of taking responsibility, which is key there. Um, and I would say, I would argue, also, yeah, to agree with your point is that the counterculture has gone too far. There, mm-hmm. there are people who are being, even if you think, I think about Al, Al Frank and Al Frank. Oh, yeah. You know, that whole scenario. Really bad timing for his career. Really bad timing for his career and for the this country, I think, in, in that moment as well. But he's a great example of like, you know, he just stepped up. was like, okay, I, I resign. And now look where we are, right? It's just like a year later, it was just a different yeah. world. And, um, you know, that's the kind of, that guy has grown up to what I see from the outside as being a, a good-hearted person and trying to, but his intention is to make the world a better place and mm-hmm. to make the US a better place. But because of this silly mistake when he was young and and, and not say it was right because, you know, it was completely inappropriate, mm-hmm. but there's a difference, right? And whereas you see people now, not taking responsibility for their actions and and in fact arguing that their actions were either didn't happen or that they were justified that's that's where the problem you know that's the spectrum right there and i absolutely and i think that this also translates in how we live our lives if you live your life like you're trying to protect the actual truth because your actual truth would isn't okay to be out in the world um some people can't even let their actual truth be known by their partners you know, they feel like they have to protect what's real. That's not a good situation. No. You know, what's a good situation is to be like, you know what? Like, kill me all day with for what I say. I, I've examined myself. I believe in what I'm doing and what I'm saying. I'm willing to listen and learn and change all the time. Um, but I'm going to have the courage to be and exist and to share what I have to say and and listen um, and know that that if you if you want to kill me for what I'm going to say, you cannot. Once you get to that place, you can't be killed. I, I agree. Yeah, exactly that. Um, I know I'm encouraging with it, my partner, um, mm-hmm. and just very much. So just be honest. You know what I mean? We, we actually, when we were together, was very early on was the rule is we just be honest with each other. Mm-hmm. Things are coming up. We talk to each other about it. It's the ultimate exhale. You want to be exhaled. Let me exhale in this life. And I want to be around people that let me exhale. And exhaling is to not have to hide any of the stuff. Mm-hmm. There's this great um, Pompeii. Uh, in Pompeii, there are these frescoes. That involve the industry initiation into Dionysian mysteries and that kind of thing. But there's this one final, I think maybe one of the final images is very profound, of a man laying across a woman's lap, but you can tell he's just not putting a single bit of energy into holding his body together. He's just dissolved 
on her lap. And what you see is with his back on his back across her lap. It's not sexual. It's not even romantic. It's just, oh, you're holding me, just letting to being able to let go of anything I'm holding on to. Right. I just had to hold on to anything with you. That's what we I built my life around that. Yeah, I, I love that sentiment. That's it's a really nice one. Great. Um, okay. Um, let's talk about emotions mm-hmm. with big decisions. Mm-hmm. Like, what what are the what are some of the big emotions that come up? Um, for example, fear, whatever it might be, when you're making these big decisions, and how do you regulate them? Though, especially the ones that are, for example, like fear, which just really are going to push against you and to say, don't make this decision because I'm scared for it. Gosh. Um, <laughs> a lot of times that we will keep making, we will keep trying to not make the decision because we're afraid. Like, and then literally this is, this is when, uh, you know, unfortunately, if you don't make the decision to go on the journey with Obi-Wan, it might cost you your, your aunt and uncle being killed because you're going to have to go on that journey and the world is going to be burned behind you to make you go on the journey if you keep refusing it. Right. And, that's a lot of I, I hate to say, but I've been somebody who is. Of course, many of us have to be kicked out of the nest to go. Like it's not because we found the courage; it's because we got to, you know. Um, and I think that. Uh, but here's the funny thing: you ever like go on a roller? I'm, I used to be very afraid of roller coasters. I'd go through all the fear getting on the thing. I didn't go on for years, right? So then I got back on roller coasters as an adult, and. It's amazing. Once you're forced, once once you get to the top of that roller coaster and that thing is going down, all the fear turns into courage mm-hmm. and turns into joy. Yep. And I find that, you know, it's not that that courage isn't there. It's that you're resisting to the last inch to have to use it. Mm-hmm. But then it's there when you have to. Um, I, funny enough, that analogy, um, I always have this memory. There's a, was the tallest roller coaster in England called the Big Dipper. It's okay. called Blackpool. It's like a town on the west coast of england i think don't quote me there english people i'm sorry if i'm if i'm misremembering that um and uh we went when i was a kid and um with my stepdad and my little sister the three of us were going on the roller coaster and i'm terrified of heights um which i've actually also got better at fortunately over the years um uh but um when we were lining up for it i was so anxious and so scared and i was like oh my god this isn't for me i was like you know maybe 10 years old or whatever it is maybe maybe 12 years old actually um but we go down and we get in the ride and they lock you in. And then at that point, I'm like, okay, I don't want to do this. I want to get out of here. Yeah. But it's too late. You yeah. only have to embrace. You have to get on. Yep. And at the time, my stepdad was like, oh, you'll be fine. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be great. You know, encouraging me. All good. We get on. And as you point out, we get to the top. We kind of, when you drop down. And for me, whenever I go on a roller coaster, it's still where I have that pattern where I have that fear getting on. Uh-huh. And then as soon as I get to the peak... Like, and we start going down, my arms aren't clinching to the rails yeah. anymore. They're in the air. And yeah. I'm screaming and my, there's a big smile on my face. And yeah. I always remember that one, especially because my, my stepdad was so confident about it. But when you, when you get to the end and you see the photo, you got me there with my arms in the air. And he's like, holding on, like, for his life. <laughs> I'm just terrified of what's going on. Oh, I thought that was a nice juxtaposition. It's always stuck with me. But yeah. Um, uh, anyway, um, but that's, uh, that's, that's, um, that's great. Um, okay. Um, more of a we've all made decisions that we regret mm-hmm. is there any is there anything that you want to share that you kind of feel that you you made a big decision in life that you wish you hadn't have done and that you feel i mean i'm sure it still drove you to a positive place but is there anything oh there's one there's one particular decision that that's really interesting on that for me and um 
I remember that I had uh, an ex-girlfriend and a new girlfriend. And I had I have a dog that was my dog, but that I got it during the time that I was with the ex-girlfriend. Sure. And then that ex-girlfriend got into a life-changing accident. And I needed, I wanted to send that dog to go be an angel for this person. Mm -hmm. This was very difficult for the person that I was with. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did the first time. But then there was a request to, again, and my partner basically made it clear that the whole connection with my ex and the dog thing was too much for her. And I had to make a decision. I I felt like the right thing to do was to send my dog to be with my ex. I felt like the thing I had to do in my relationship was not. That is the first time I made a decision against my own conscience. Mm-hmm. And I hated it. And I still hate it. And I still, I feel I, I connect that decision to the decisions in Eden. The things that kind of make you leave. Like, I, I felt like I, I felt like at the time I had to do the right thing by the relationship. Um, but it wasn't what I thought was the right thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that kind of goes... Um, to something you were saying earlier oh well something we talked earlier which was that or a question I'd asked you which was about you have your instincts mm-hmm. and then you have the result mm-hmm. right as where you get to and it sounds to me like your instinct was conflicting with the decision you made and that was the hardest part I was of two paradigms yeah. and I'd never been asked to make a decision against my conscience mm-hmm. um, in order to stand by a partner and um, I don't like I don't like that I had to either it was yeah. actually not a good thing and, yeah. and I, I guess that was probably one of the instances that um, led to, again, something to a bit earlier, which was um, uh, just kind of um, when we're thinking about how things affect other people, mm-hmm. right? And you were just, that, that I can imagine that being so complex to navigate. You know, there's this responsibility to this new relationship versus the old and, and the need for that, by the way. And, and, and also there's a, thinking about you in that situation, you know the significance of this the dog going and that, yeah. that that emotional connection and how much it would help and how much an advantage would be on that person. Uh, but then it's this, like, but you don't see that every day. When you're in right. this relationship, you're kind of seeing and you're feeling yeah. the, the repercussions of making a choice yeah. of that, and which makes it so much harder um, to, to kind of go with your heart and what you believe is the right thing because the world is saying to you, no, that's not the right thing. She didn't leave, my yeah. partner at the time didn't leave that as an option, as a thing I could do, right. you know, even. Um, Maybe, yeah, it's a, make it's, it's, yeah okay well and uh do you mind me asking like how much longer that relationship lasted after that point years years okay okay um and uh, but is it something that you look back on now was like that was a big red flag i should have listened to that uh you know the thing is is that uh i knew that it was coming from her weaknesses right and to love a person you uh, you you gotta know that we got weaknesses we got blind spots in our ability to be good people Sure. And this was a blind spot in her ability to be a good person because right. of her own weaknesses and her own, which came from traumas and things. And I, I tended to, I'm a kind of person who has maybe made too many concessions, like conceits for a person because I can see how this bad behavior, how a certain like damaging behavior is connected to their damage. Mm-hmm. And I want to love and forgive them for it yeah. um, to a fault, to my own detriment eventually. But, um, you know, I, I think that... Uh, you know, I 
I just, I feel like I don't want to, you make these, life's a lot of gray. There is gray. And a lot of times it's just not a good decision. Right. And ultimately, um, it was going to hurt somebody. And I had committed to caring about somebody else's heart the most. And that's what it was to her, was you would put somebody else's heart above mine. Right. You know, and for me, it was like, you know, but don't you see that this person's in the bottom of an experience? Right. And like, can't, you know. Right. Um, but. I mean, I can understand yeah. it. Like, it, yeah. it, um, it's an easy one for me to to put myself in that position and yeah. think about what I was doing. And very, very likely I'd do the same you did in that moment, you know, and, and thinking, I'm assuming this was a while ago, obviously. Yeah. So, you know, when I was younger, like, you just, you, we, it takes a lifetime, family, still got 60 years to go, whatever, mm. to understand our, or at least have a sense of our minds and really our purpose and, and what ticks and what, what mm. makes us feel good, what is good and so forth. And um, to go back again, like, we make decisions sometimes that we just are the wrong ones, but we don't, we don't, Sometimes it isn't about being right or wrong. Sometimes there are decisions you kind of feel you have to make. Yeah. Um, and I get, I get, this kind of goes back to my second greatest advantage is to have a choice. To me, the way you said the story, you didn't really have a choice. Yeah. Right. You know, that, that was the situation. And, and, um, so that, that does make it extremely hard, especially when the decision does harm someone else. It, it did. And, and as somebody who I obviously cared about, yeah. you know, uh, and the, that having been said, there was a third choice that I didn't understand at the time. Because I didn't understand enough about emotions and, and dynamics and uh, and that kind of thing. So uh, what I would do now would be very different. By if it was now, I would realize that the that this my partner's inability to support this is coming from fears, and I would have instead focused on meeting the needs that were beneath the problem, mm-hmm. and I would have also not wavered. And my commitment to doing what I knew I had to do is right. I would be like, hey, this is, you know. Right. But also, I would have been all in on on what the actual source of that anxiety was. Right. And um, that was the, that was the way to do it. And I didn't have that, you know, I didn't. It, it, so a lot of the bad decisions or the choices you make that, that wrestle, they're the ones that there isn't a good choice and it breaks your paradigm. And eventually you're going to have to find a whole new way of thinking about it to solve that type of problem. Right. Um, and yeah, you know, credit to your ex who, who, who suffered this and kind of and uh, instigated this, this decision um, uh, to her credit. Yeah, look, these, these are things that are innate in us and they're from past traumas and experiences. And it's, it's, not, it's not unreasonable. It's not, it's not a choice in that sense. It's like, like her, her feeling that way isn't, isn't that she woke up one morning and decided to feel that way. It was based on her experiences. She found out what she needed. Exactly. And that was part of an equation and a chemistry that had also to do with the fact that I uh, left room for her to feel more safe emotionally. Right. Is there anything that while we've been talking about your choice, your thought and process that you we haven't talked about that you want to add to the conversation for, mm-hmm. for context? You want to kind of finish up on, on that particular choice? Or? Well, or just in general, the specifics of your choice making and... and but it was your evolution or, or your process or um, just something that's anything that's... One thing I will say is that while I do think some of our most profound choices are made at a, at a deeper, bigger level than our conscious mind, and we find that we've been making this choice for a lot longer than we've actually... that That's cool, and sometimes it's profound, and sometimes it's leading us towards something beautiful. But one of the things I also had to learn 
is that the miracles that happen around you guiding you towards something, mm-hmm. you think that they're trying to help you. You think that that's the great, good, positive way to go. And the trick is it will be, but it's a conspiracy of the deep self mm-hmm. with the universe to destroy your ego. <laughs> and so a lot of these miracles, a lot of these synchronicities, they're just guiding you towards your own death. And when you get there, you will feel betrayed. Right. Right. You will feel betrayed by the universe. And, but and then when you get to the other side and the stuff that gets born out of that ego death, you'll be like, okay, mm-hmm. damn it. Right. You know? Right. I guess it's the another way to look at it. Uh, analogy is is characters in a movie or a story in that you know you have your central character and the other characters are there to reflect the parts back of the the lead the main protagonist and uh that feels like a lot of what you just said is is like when you know you have that experience you're betrayed by judas or whomever it might be like that's that's you kind of being highlighted the part of you that that is susceptible to that totally to that that emotional idea um and you kind of appreciate it okay um love it all right well um uh, thanks for sharing all that. That was uh, so interesting, and I, I, I know I took a lot away from that. Um, for for fun, um, I'm kind of adding a uh, an off subject question to this podcast, um, and 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 each time I'm going to have one of these questions. It kind of be related to the interviewee. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, it's you, mm-hmm. um, and I'm going to ask you about the where you think society is heading anyway when she touched this a little bit earlier i said i might ask you about this and uh i'll run you through the scenario or how i am kind of seeing the world at this point in time mm-hmm. uh i mean for thousands of years we've we the world um and let's focus on the western world for now we've put up a system on on how to thrive and survive right and 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 work ethic is a huge part of that it's just it's, it's run through it all and in the modern day um career is everything right you're having a great job making loads of money and doing all this stuff right whatever what up blah 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 um there's a couple of things that's affecting that now one is this awareness um which has been elevated by the dawn of social media the internet uh, and just general awareness um in that people are realizing that i don't like the system mm-hmm. i don't like working this way i don't like this doesn't fit with my body. This doesn't fit with my mind. It doesn't like it doesn't gel with me. And by the way, people have struggled with that for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. But um, for the longest time, I think it was it was really hard to break away from the system on like a on a, on a grander scale. Mm-hmm. Now with the internet, with social media, it's just alerting people to this idea that it, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to be in this system. Second second part of that is. Um, because of the uh, the current economic climate, um, there's so much more uncertainty mm-hmm. with career and job these days. And for example, you know, you go into a company and like there's people that worked at Amazon or Apple or wherever it might be, and they've been there for 20 years, and then suddenly they have to do corporate layoffs, and it's their day off, and they get an email saying you're fired after 20 years, right? So, I think in the space of one two years unfortunately uh the business world has has broken trust with its employee and i think that's a big shift like what like the, the recent is probably the best example because it was so many of them but i you know people think about people going to careers now i'm not going to go and invest in a company if in two years five years ten years they could just say now sorry you're not financially viable at this point right there's not that 
It's not the tradition of investment that they used to be. And again, the world has shifted. The world's got bigger. It's more complex. There's so much more to it. So these two big things, this one of like, I don't like this system. And two, I can't trust the system. Right? To me, it feels like we are heading to a point where uh, we're an individualist society. Western, oh, yeah. if you want to make basics, individualist versus yeah. society, right? Which is the more of the Eastern kind of structure. Um, the individual society um, is a myth in a sense. It's like, okay, you're all individuals and you can all thrive and be a catalyst and whatever, mm-hmm. but actually you've got to fit in the system, you've got to pay your bills, you've got to pay your taxes, and that's how we're going to keep you in the system. Mm-hmm. We're breaking out of that. Like, I think I think it's just going to be a big waterfall of, like, mentality shizzling. Do you agree with that sentiment? And and if so, like, how how do you think that's going to evolve? Like, and, and even if you can throw out a guess of, like, a time period of that, mm-hmm. like, how, how that's going to shift. And that was a big question. Uh-huh. A lot of predictions to ask about there, but it's just something that's been like playing in my mind recently. Well, uh, I, you'd be a good person to ask. Well, it's, first of all, it's been awesome talking with you about things like that already in the mm-hmm. past. Um, I, I did an episode on Nostradamus um, mm-hmm. for that show, and so I'll try to channel my... Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, no, I, I think actually what you're saying about the system uh, getting to a breaking point, mm-hmm. we're here in LA Center Studios, and uh, you used to work for HBO. And one of the shows that they did here, HBO shows, is, of course, Westworld. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was really meta was that in the middle of COVID, when I, I think that you talked about psychedelics being something that breaks people's cycle, right? Mm-hmm. You can just break out of a thing. Well, so did a pandemic. Like, all of us were so forced out of certain cycles. And what was so meta was that as that was happening, Westworld season was coming out, and we get to the episode where all of a sudden everybody's cycle breaks. And people are all of a sudden off their their rhythm. And I think that that literally just happened at a global scale. And it's one of the catalysts to us realizing, you know, wait a minute, this system kind of isn't the thing, right? That's what happens when an inciting incident of a story, you break somebody a little bit out of their place, and then that's going to start a journey of transformation. And we're on it, uh, big time on it. I'm actually thrilled and excited to see the world we build with the people who actually went on the journeys that they were called to go on when they were broken out at not just one or two people at a time, but like at a massive level, we haven't begun. We are going to rise with what those people have done in this time. Um, But what you're saying about the system reaching a breaking point and individualism, I think about it a lot, actually. I think we are at the tower tarot card moment, right? Where it has basically built everything the Buddha has this idea that truth is notionless. So the second you start trying to put forward a notion, you're imbalanced. Any notion, all notions. You start saying any notion, you're imbalanced. Same with any being. Every being is out of balance just to exist. If it was symmetrical perfectly, it would just not even be. So we are our asymmetries. Well, so every new being, that asymmetry is, is actually a response to the asymmetry of a larger world. They're compensatory. So every asymmetry is trying to bring a balance to a previous asymmetry. So everything that we see now that we did was responding. I mean, think about capitalism set us free from all kinds of hierarchies, hierarchies of religion and state. Capitalism was a breakthrough. Democracy was a breakthrough. Liberating, profound, wonderful. It was itself an imbalanced cure to an imbalanced world. And now it is the imbalanced world. And so basically, I think everything lives itself out and extinguishes itself, burns itself out. It it goes to the limits of its imbalance. And 
that's happened and is happening in the West, not just with capitalism and business, but literally the atom, the most individual of all individual premises of our whole paradigm, the atom is no longer seen as an individual atom anymore. It's now a quanta. Thank you, Einstein, right? It is now a wave-particle duality. So that foundation of individualism, it was the atomist who figured out that the atom isn't an atom. <laughs> so the point is, is that it was the, the capitalists that ride capitalism to its extreme and hit its limits. Right. And I think that that's what's, what's happening. Now, the amazing thing that's happening, too, is that it's not just that at the same time that we are living out the death of our own journey. It's coming to a completion. I mean, we're leaving the earth. That's how individual we are. We, we have we've lived out this narrative of individualism to a point where now we're in the richest state in the richest country and there's more people on the streets than we can even it's it's gut wrenching and it makes no sense people wouldn't have done that in the poorest countries you know and we do that so there's clearly a problem with our relationship it's gone too far it's an, it's a cancerous individualism it's an imbalance i love individualism but let's put some balance to it now as we reach the limits of our individualism and our imbalance and we're deconstructing ourselves and deconstructing who we are to see through it which we've been doing since World War II, by the way, especially. Um, meanwhile, there's another paradigm on the rise, and that is the Eastern paradigm, as you mentioned, and specifically China's. Now, China, the CCP is a little bit of a sham, even though it puts forward the idea of communism and collective foundation. It's obviously an, an autocracy, right. but what it's clearly doing is it has zero respect for individual rights. There is no Bill of Rights in the Chinese constitution. There is no defense of the individual. Whereas we have no defense of the collective. We're just, you know, very minimal, right? So what I see happening, sure, Cold War, war, whatever, how long it takes, I don't know. But what I see is I see a world psyche where the ego of the world, the Western consciousness, which has had control and dominion over the world, is reaching its own limitation as the unconscious repressed paradigm is rising to disrupt it. And what this will... what what we can look at is we can say clearly Xi Jinping and Putin are, are their bad guys. These, this is not a rising up of a good thing that we're supposed to embrace. That's not it. These are shadows to put down. However, even when you're putting down a shadow figure, a shadow monster that's rising to disrupt your reality, there's a reason why they can, there's a reason why they are, and there is something you're supposed to integrate. So I believe that we are going to go through a process where we in the West, add some collectivism to our individuality, and they in the East, especially in China, are going to add some individuality and individual rights to their collective. And that's going to be a new balance of the world because we've been developing these two paradigms in parallel as far as they go. And now it's time for the collective individuation of those things. Right. And how long is that going to take? All I know is every time I see a journey that we're on, I think that the next step is going to happen quickly and realize that these things take a lot longer than we realize. And I think that unfortunately, I have... No, I can see how it could work to happen quickly, but that would make that would require a lot of good decisions, good decisions or um, uh, unexpected circumstances. Yes, right. Yeah, I think third things, surprise heroes, exactly that kind of stuff, which yeah. is normally pandemic being a great example, which which is normally what shifts the world on its axis mm -hmm. uh, more than anything. Um, uh, that's a great answer. Um, Thank you for well, hearing. That's right now. So, it, it's great. It's, yeah. it's, that's uh, it's really nice to, to hear from your perspective and um, and add some add some flavour as well. Um, it's going to be an interesting time. That's for sure. I think um, uh, uh, I know I'm someone who is uh, 
less in love with work culture than I have ever been. Ah, yeah. Um, I understand the necessity for it, including for myself. Uh, yeah. You know, looking for a job myself right now, it's like that's what has to happen. Um, doesn't mean you have to like it necessarily uh, or, or seek to improve it or, or find better ways to manage it. One thing I want to point out is just that I, I heard this on the radio one time. I can't take credit for it. That even though there was a democratic revolution in, pol- in the political world, there wasn't a democratic revolution in the business world. And the business world dominates 90% of our lives. So we still live in, we still live in a monarchy effectively in the business world we're still serfs in the way that is structured and oh by the way it's even more that way now because of the way that we don't have long-term contracts the way that we have you know all kinds of short-term things nobody's secure nobody has any loyalty there's no loyalty uh so i i think that's yeah tre- tre- tremendous problems that we have to figure out but obviously one of the things that's really interesting um atlas and prometheus atlas is the guy at the sunset holding up the world mm-hmm. Prometheus of the guy at the sunrise lifting up a new world the thing is is that Atlas always thinks is always Atlas is the older guy Prometheus is leading the youthful revolution right sunrise morning we always think of Atlas as holding up the world but we got to understand he's at sunset there's a reason he's at sunset because he's trying to stop a world that is going to set from setting right and the thing is is from his perspective the world is ending it is like the Titans are being defeated. He sees the world ending and he's not wrong. It is ending. But there is always a Prometheus on the other side of the equation. There is always a new world rising. So always every elder always sees the world ending because from their perspective, it is their world is ending all the time. It's uh, the ego death times infinity. Yes. Right. It's like that's that's the the world ending isn't the world ending. It's mm-hmm. the, the ego death of the world and it's shifting into its new purpose, mm-hmm. its new direction. That's the interpretation of uh, a Jungian interpretation of what all the apocalypse stories are, is they're stories of collective individuation. Right. Right. Okay. Great. Love that. Um, all right. Um, before we finish up, I've got a, a couple of questions which might benefit myself and, and the audience. Um, what's the most game-changing advice you've ever received? I think there's something that's resonated with you and, and kind of that stuck with you throughout your life. The night that I went off my track, the night that my thing broke the first time, before I had my first seizure, I was laying in bed and all of a sudden I saw the, the this is, I was wrestling with purpose. Is there a purpose? And I was going through all that initial stuff and, and uh, all of a sudden I saw the corner of my room turn into a maelstrom, into this whirlpool, and I was being swallowed. And I saw myself and everything I'd ever been existing from ever having existed. And um, and then I, at the time I was struggling with existence and I was struggling with purpose. And, and, and this was like a manifestation of exactly where I was. There is no purpose. There is no meaning. So gone. Right. But then when I actually had the opportunity to be gone um, and live out that philosophy of not being able to find a purpose or a reason to be or do anything, something came through, an instinct. And it said, you be, be, you know, and when that happened, I tried to fight it. I tried to fight what was happening and I started shaking violently and fell off my bed. And, and, and I'm in the most energetic and intense state of my life. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, as I'm fighting it harder and harder and harder, the harder I fight, the more I shake, you know, um, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these words come into my, my head. Still. Boom. I was out of space and time. I was infinitely still. Woke up to it happening again, remembered it, stilled myself. Woke up to it happening again, remembered, stilled myself. Over, 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 over. Don't remember how many times that first night 
um, then I would have this these types of encounters for months. And then eventually, I would become so comfortable with my ability to still myself that I would stop being afraid to go back to sleep. And then it never happened again. The first night I was like, you know what? I don't care. I don't want to be afraid. If it happens again, I'll still myself. Poof, spell's gone. Then I applied the same thing to my seizures. When the seizures would come, instead of being focused on the seizure, instead I would focus on my stillness and I would go to a still place. Seizure will be gone. And it really healed myself with seizures. I did a whole study with doctors to prove that I had healed myself, you know, after going off medication, all that stuff. And then um, uh, later, um, when my heart was broken, completely broken, that was my salvation, was remembering that guidance, be still. And you asked at the beginning of this, how do I make decisions? And the real answer is when I finally, finally have done enough processing, I try to just be still. Mm-hmm. Best advice. I don't know where it came from. Yeah, I was going to say, you have no idea where it came from. I eventually did learn a thing. When my mother was giving birth to me, she was trembling like I was, wildly. And her mother came over to her, put her hand on her belly, and said, be still. Wow. And she was still. That's amazing. I didn't know that till years after that experience. That's very cool. Okay. Um, well, that's... Uh... That's that's fantastic, and and uh, a few things from that is one that you were able to find the ability to nix drugs and nix medication uh, and and fighting uh, something with your mind, um, which is clearly was manifested from your mind as well as, as you know, uh, um, and so that's amazing, and and I, it's just a really nice lesson that that especially when something is manifested in the mind, if there's some kind of need, there are uh, alternatives to medication. Um, and what that makes me think of, of course, is that I use in my modern day life is meditation. It is, and the purpose of meditation is to be still, to allow yourself to let let the thoughts come to the surface and and kind of and and you know work your way through the forest to to see the light. Um, and so that's that's amazing. That's that's really uh, endearing. And I also like that because it's not that it's someone has said to you do this, do that, and and it's resonated, but it came from within you. And it was something that was within you that you didn't even know. Um, it also goes to just prove to anyone who ever thought, hey, look, you know, things we experience, do they really sit in there that long? <laughs> you were being born and, and that home happened. And, and I mean, it seems very tangible that that's very much related to that moment. Um, and that's amazing. By the way, the land, that night I told you where I finally was like, I'm not going to be afraid of this anymore. I was sleeping in the one, my grandmother had died a few years before. My grandfather had gotten remarried. The new woman had uh, uh, redecorated the whole house except for the apartment over the garage. And so I was in the one space that was still my grandmother's space. And I didn't know she was part of this. I didn't know she said, be still. Uh, but I was in her space to complete the loop. Amazing. Yeah. That's that's a, that's a great, great answer. I couldn't have anything better there. Um, okay. So uh, on, a, on a, the more negative side, uh-huh. What's the best advice you ever got that you ignored? Mm. If anything comes <laughs> to mind. Um, probably uh, I had this great teacher and I, I love the advice. I just struggled to follow it. And he said, um, it's a mentor. And he said, uh, Dennis Slattery. Dennis Slattery told me that his mentor said to him, uh, may you not get there until the end. And... Uh, I had you, Mott Walter, head of the Joseph Campbell Foundation for many years, read this poem, Ithaca, right? In the poem, if you know this Ithaca, the poem, it's the same thing. It's enjoy the journey. May you not get there till the end. 
And I'm a person that, hey, I can't, sometimes I just want to get there. I want to get there. And I love enjoying stuff along the way, but but I do have a hard time listening to that advice. And that's why I keep getting it. Right, right. Uh, and I, I don't think you're uh, on your own there. Like, I think that's a very common one for people, um, especially in the modern age where we are so used to getting instant gratification, uh, especially if it's something that you just have a vision for, you're excited about, you just want it to happen right there and then, even building a new relationship, whatever it might be. But um, I guess the, to distill it down again, which I like to do, is is be present, right? That's that's the, the message from both of those uh, quotes there is just, just be present and uh um, you know, there's there's many cliched sayings we could throw out there, but I won't bore everyone with those. Um, but I like that. Um, okay, well, last question um, I have for you today is: if you could ask a wise person anything, what would you ask them? When I say wise person, I mean you know an all-knowing being, whatever that, however that manifests in your mind. What would you ask that person? That's so funny because the first person I went to was Socrates, who's the exact huh. opposite of all-knowing. Right. Because he knows he knows nothing, right? But if I could ask an all-knowing person, okay, I have to I have to confess, I would ask something that comes from my smallest, most pathetic self, my greatest fears and my most disappointing, little bitty uh, dude inside. I would ask, um, what's the afterlife? I'm, I'm just... I, I know it. I, it's just true. If, if I'm awake at two in the morning and I've decided not to try to watch something to fall asleep that night, what am I going to be wrestling with? What it's going to be like to die? And all the time, I go quiet, and that's where it goes. And um, and uh, I, by the way, have had the chance to. A shaman has given me some pretty profound thoughts about that. A ninety-year-old shaman shared with me uh, his uh, encounterings of, of multiple different mediums and shamans throughout his life that all. Uh, brought up the same past life for him and he was trying to say to me hey man i know that this is what stresses you out and it paralyzes you is your own relationship with mortality let me tell you how sure i am that like literally this medium that medium this shaman all were like hey this story they all said the same so he's trying to get me to understand and have some peace about about what might happen after we die and can't help it mortality is the the thing over the shoulder and if i had a cheap shot and chance to get an answer about it i'd take it yeah, uh, it's the it's again it's the, our number one instinct is survival and yeah. and the thing that goes against us the most is death, right? And it's none of us can avoid it. Literally, mm-hmm. no species on the planet, plant mm-hmm. or animal or human, um, and it's around us every day, right? It's it's I've been thinking about this recently. Uh, even in uh, when events happen, right? The the statistic that people pull out is deaths. You know, or, or when someone dies, it's like it's that's the important note, and it's the thing that we all look for because we all know it's coming for us. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those those elements in life where we're all connected. Um, and one of the greatest parts of it is that we have no idea one how it's going to happen to us. So there's that physical side of it, and whether it's going to be painful or scary or whatever it might be. And, and for lucky, we fall asleep and we we drift off. Amazing. Um, but the the aftermath. Uh, that's a whole other thing, and and uh, I suspect a riddle that we will never ever know. We're not allowed to. Not allowed. Exactly. That's it. It's just in, I don't think any investigation will ever know what actually happens when we die. Until we do. Thank you so much for taking this time, being so generous with it, and sharing your experience, and in particular your unique insights and decision making, your openness in sharing both positive and negative experiences is is truly commendable to me and 
I know I learned a lot from it and I expect the audience will too. Um, you've been an excellent guest. Uh, so thank you again for being such a good sport and indulging me with your thoughtful responses. Honestly, uh, I'd love to talk with you anytime. And um, thank you for uh, what I was saying back in uh, Pompeii, you know, the ability to just let, let loose. This is uh, one of the most uh, uh, personal interviews that I've ever, you know, been a part of. And I really appreciate you making space for me to be able to just, you know, talk about the stuff. It's been it's been an easy space to make, um, that's for sure. And to our audience, thanks so much for joining us for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Please take a moment to hit those subscribe and share buttons. And if you can afford a paid subscription, amazing. Thank you. It will go a really long way to help me produce more content like this. If you're interested in my art and photography or would like a link to my newsletter, please head over to www.davidcoupon.com. For now, thank you all for listening. Your support means everything and there's a lot more to come. This has been Complicated by Choices. I am David Coupland and thank you again to my guest, Will Lynn.